It's like, you know, we have a comfortable house and I, I, I want a great lifestyle and for my for my family and my kids. But my my quality of life uh, submits to my quality of giving. And so I, I, I want to be able to free that up. And so I think for me, it's that like just living like, you know, what's next gives you such a, a respect and a, a, a mindset for for how to what to do today and what to invest in. Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. And since then, we have been on a professional and personal journey together. We made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun, even a few wins along the way. Our goal in all of this is to share experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things just a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family with questions that make you want to unfollow. AP, we are back. Episode three, we now officially have two followers. It's amazing. They say, hey, by the time you do something three times, it's official. So I feel like this is our formal coming out party. Episode one was foundational. Episode two, I'm still getting texts and messages on from a few people, whoever the five people are that listened. They they actually had good feedback and critiques. So, you know, things we could do better. But episode three, I'm ready, man. We're excited to continue the unfollow podcast episode. We're going to dig into money. But we're going to follow the same thing, man. We're going to talk about, hey, what are we unlearning? What are we giving up? What's new? What's next for our lives? And we hope that some of this advice uh, is good for our listeners as well, man. Totally agree. Uh, my favorite piece of feedback uh, from this week was from a lady named Elizabeth. And she said, hey, I'm about 10 years ahead of you guys. I've got two college-age students right now. I'm going to pass the podcast on to them because sometimes having a voice that's not your parents seems to go a little farther. And she said, hey, your 40s are going to be amazing. You're going to learn a lot of stuff. So it was really cool to hear like, hey, there's actually a generation in my own household that I'm passing this podcast to, but you guys are not done learning yet. And I think that's what you and I are so focused on. Exactly. Yeah, I think uh, the good news about this podcast is we're not giving advice. We're giving evidence. So we're not telling you how to solve a problem because we're experts on it, we're telling you about our experiences and how we might have messed up or how we've learned from from our mistakes. And so, yeah, I think it's a great journey to come on. The feedback I've gotten has been a lot from uh, folks in business or uh, folks in the faith community or church who are really, I think, gravitating towards some of the messages of, hey, what are we doing uh, wrong as an organization or just areas of improvement. So I think that um, that ability to just be transparent about our struggles and some of those things. I think people gravitate towards that. And because I am a minister of mediocrity, I suck at so many different things. This is my sweet spot. So I can't get this wrong. So I'm excited to start today's uh, conversation. You know, last week we talked about a little bit about money and finances. And I think we both have had an interesting journey in that regard. And I'm excited to continue that conversation and dig into some of our experiences, but also some of the things that we've learned along the way uh, as you know, as we've become fathers, husbands, business leaders, entrepreneurs, and you know whatever's next uh, and new for our lives. So let's just get started and let's cut to the chase, right? So we always are going to start with usually a failure, um, and in this situation, it's always uh, good advice gone bad or well-meaning advice that didn't turn out to be so well-meaning, like fruitcake, right? Everybody's got it, but nobody wants to eat it. So 
AP, hit me with some of the worst, best advice you ever got around money. Oh, the worst, best advice about money. I think a lot of my worst, best advice on money probably started just early in my late teens. And I remember getting feedback from adults, right? If you follow your dreams, you won't make any money. And so at that time, I was into acting and theater and art. And I remember getting, you know, you know, some pretty direct feedback, especially from my dad or from older people in my life who were like, yeah, that's cool, but you, you need to get a career that you can make some money. And it wasn't just about, it wasn't bad necessarily money advice. I think it was bad life advice because what, I, what it implanted into me, especially in that early age, was that my, um, became this idea that my income and my identity are, are connected. And I think, um, it became to have an impact on how I saw things, right? So I viewed money, oh, I guess, okay, money is the measure of kind of that that step up. And so for me, it started for me an unhealthy view of money as a measure of my success or, or my value. And I, I feel like I spent probably maybe 10, 15 years on that path before I could unwind from it and rewind that tape and go back to say, well, you know, it's not about necessarily following my dreams or making money. It's about kind of really following my purpose and what I should be. And then if that leads to any kind of, um, you know, call it abundance or things that I have, well, I can give those things away. I can invest. I can create a life for my family. But those things aren't necessarily a scorecard or a measure. So for me, kind of the bad advice was if you follow your dreams, you're not going to make any money. And I heard it from so many professors in college as well. So I kept hearing it. Uh, yeah, so it, it, was, it was a tough one. I feel like I made decisions based on the economic realities versus uh, honing my skill uh, or, you know, getting more experience or being a curious learner as well. And so I guess I can look back and see where I am now and say, OK, well, I think you're OK. But I would say this. I, I think there are some hurdles I face we'll get into later that I think are directly tied to my relationship with money and identity um, as well. So what about you, man? Bad advice on money. Man, I've got two large ones to mm -hmm. unpack. Oh, um, man. This is therapy. Okay. Let's go. So let me set the scene for you. Um, I am probably at this point 31 or 32 years old. Um, and I am about to uh, dive into what would have been the biggest real estate deal for me to that point. Um, keep in mind, I had done my due diligence on this deal. This deal was uh, something that was going to be a big deal for me at that time. Um, and so like, I was super serious about this. So I took a, a guy who was a, a leader in my life at that point down to see this project. And I walked him through the project and he looked at me and he said, Hey D I'd hate to see you make a million dollar mistake. Ooh. Yeah. That stopped me in my tracks. Right. And so <laughs> on its surface, right? Hey D I'd hate to make, see you make a million dollar mistake. Seems like, Hey, I'm looking out for you. I'm, I'm very like, uh, optimistic, but I'm cautious in this moment and, and I want the best for you, right? That was terrible advice and here's why. Because he knew and I knew that I had done all of the due diligence on this project. Even though it was one of my first big projects, the deal itself should speak, right? Not my age, not my current financial situation. The deal itself should speak. And here's the other thing. If this deal really was going to be a million dollar deal, if he knew anything about real estate investment, he would have known that I would have only had at the max 
$200,000 of my own money or energy or time into that project, right? So keep in mind, I'm, a, I'm in my early 30s. I'm like 31, 32. This happens. I would have bounced back from a $200,000 at the worst loss, right? And so what we're going to unpack tonight is those two types of mindsets. I came at this with an abundance mindset saying like, hey, I don't have the current resources I need to do this project, but I'm going to find them and develop them. What do you think? And there was another individual who I was looking to for leadership and help and guidance and like helping me find those resources. And he was like, hey, man, I just don't want to see you make a million dollar mistake. I took that same deal to the bank and the banker looked at me and said, hey, I don't want to see you ruin your family's life. The banker said that to me. So both people, both people were shopping, you know, they were shopping that money with what they perceived to be my wallet at that time, which was small. And so now as I have the opportunity to help other young people uh, navigate real estate deals, one of my favorite things to do is to show them if it's a good deal or it's a bad deal. Like I tried to eliminate who the person is doing the deal. And then if they tell me, hey, like I don't have the resources for the down payment or I don't have the resources that I need to do the renovations, I help them understand where the resources are available at and how to get to them and how to think creatively about creating them. Because here's the deal. If the deal is good, it has nothing to do with the person. The deal itself should have merit. Now, what I will say is, is you can look at somebody and say, hey, you don't have a lot of experience yet. And that's okay to say that. But you always want to try to encourage them instead of like putting water on their fire. And again, we're going to talk about the difference in a scarcity mentality and an abundance mentality. But that those two pieces of feedback that I got in my early 30s have reshaped the way that we invest our money in real estate today. That's good. No, I think key learning there is right that being inexperienced with money doesn't make you unqualified to manage it. And I think you miss the opportunity there is if you can learn from it, be fast, obviously observe the guardrails. Right. And you would have controls in place to make sure it wasn't totally disastrous. I think oftentimes what happens and I think it's very similar to the guidance I got from well-meaning professors or parents uh, in my life in terms of, hey, about your career and how much money you need to make. Don't do that. I think instead of trying to uh, mold you and build you with uh trust they try to mold you and build you with fear and so their fears end up projecting onto you and they mean well i mean to them they're giving the best advice in the world i don't want to see you fall where i fell but at the same time they're actually robbing you of an opportunity to have that experience of learning of anxiety of that oh my gosh right and i remember calling you right when we were Oh, it was this? I don't know. It was I hate real estate deals. So we I've only bought two houses in my life. I hate it. I can't. I don't know how many houses or property you've owned. It's, I don't know. It's it's insane. Um, but I remember calling you right, and you're just like, dude. It gets easier with every transaction. And I, I remember advice I got too was that you know if you're not nervous, then that that almost like being nervous is a sign that that it's a good thing. Like there, there's a positive nervousness about some of these deals. But man, you, like I said, you've um, you since grown to be a real estate mogul. So I want to know this. How did that deal turn out? Did you do it? Did you not do it? Like, how no. did it turn out? Didn't I, do it. I, I never was able to, to pull it together. I think I was so defeated in that moment um, that my I kind of formed a negativity towards the deal and I, and I let it go. But I will tell you this, that looking back at that, it fueled the fire for me. So today we sit... 
with uh, a real estate portfolio that looks way different, like millions of dollars. And the reason is, is because we found ways to, to create the resources that we needed. Listen, they printed $2 trillion a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's somewhere. <laughs> they print it every day. It's about finding it and it's about finding the right people. And banks are great, but banks aren't your only opportunity. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and I know on this podcast, like you and I are mostly talking about marketing and our faith and how that overlays with uh, our race. But, you know, a big part of our life uh, here in our our family business is real estate. And so, like, it's like a constant thread for us. It's the yeah, thing it's that good. we love so much. So. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I, I I think it's it's a it's a great lesson to learn. I mean, even my you know time as a business owner and an entrepreneur, learning what I didn't know, I think was one of the biggest gifts, right? And also, I think the ability, you know, on one thing that people probably don't focus on a lot is just the basics of financial literacy. I think part of me was just, you know, and you look at some of the research online, like the United States, we have some of the lowest levels of financial literacy in the world, meaning just the basics of compound interest, diversification, inflation, savings, and some of those things in real estate, you probably see it all the time where you're like, that lack of knowledge will cost you. And so I think if we can start to at least um, help people understand the basics, whether it's consumer finance in your home and your family, or whether it's commercial finance, where you're running a business organization or you're entrepreneur, those things matter a lot. And it doesn't have to be crazy complex. And a matter of fact, a lot of it, you know, you can demystify. And I think, you know, look at our, look at our economy because we use debt to make profit off people. Um, people actually gain from my financial literacy. Right. So creditors and banks like they actually they actually benefit from my lack of knowledge. And so I think you are a great example of a guy who through that growth and that financial IQ, now you can empower other people, right, to 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 be financial leaders and be financially literate and create opportunities. And that's the only way we're gonna build each other up is by not having to go outside, but being able to have that in our community. So I, I, I love that perspective. So I know you and I both have similar stories to the way that we grew up, um, but tell me about how you grew up in Fort Worth and, and how money was handled in your house. Yeah, you know, I grew up, so I'm one of six kids. Um, so I grew up, you know, son of Reverend Donald Parker and Delois Parker. And for six years, we were um, the only black family in this middle to upper class uh, white suburb in Amarillo, Texas. My dad was one of the first black engineers to graduate from Texas Tech University. He was a civil engineer, um, had a great paying job. We were the, you know, black American dream. And my dad decides, you know what, I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to move to Fort Worth, Texas to go to the seminary, Southwestern Theological Seminary to study to get his master's degree. And so from there, he gave up his, you know, white collar, you know, uh, upperly mobile job and moved us to Fort Worth to take on school. And then he started a blue collar job to just work while he was in school. So I saw us as, you know, we were this, you know, comfortable family for first part of my life. And then, you know, from call it six to when I, you know, moved out of the house, we, we were, we were very impoverished. I think, you know, there, there were times when, you know, we, we, you know, got money from the church to pay a bill. Uh, there were times when, you know, hand-me-down clothes and Salvation Army donations became our reality. 
And it wasn't because of a lack of education, right? When my dad had a master's degree, it's because he he chose the ministry, and but he also was tied to a blue collar job with six kids. So you're taking care of eight people. Um, you know, so a lot of our time on the south side of Fort Worth, Texas, we were in a you know, a three bedroom house with eight people. And I think um, you know, he always he never worked less than less than two jobs. There's always two or more jobs. And so I grew up working from the age of thirteen on, I've always had a job to help either provide for myself or help out with the family. So I think it instilled in us a work ethic and a, um, a natural affinity for the value of education. But it also, I would say, for me at least, can't speak to my brothers and sisters, it did probably plant a seed of a scarcity mentality where I'm always ready to lose, right? Because so I've seen the best of times, the worst of times. Even in my own business, I've seen it go well, I've seen it go not. And so I think that scarcity mentality starts to starts to carry on into your lifetime and, and into your lifestyle and, and how you work. And it wasn't until I got married several years later that we started to have to unpack that. Because as you know, marriage is the best mirror ever. And if you bring all that junk into a marriage, you will quickly find out uh, what's still there that you need to get rid of. So yeah, I grew up, you know, I think knowing um, that we didn't have a lot materially, but knowing that we were loved and blessed, et cetera, and so in comparison to my classmates, I didn't have a lot of anything. I, I, you know, I knew I had to get a scholarship based on academics to go to college. And if I didn't, I, I probably wouldn't go. And so I, I think the, the lack of material things actually gave me a lot of, I think, immaterial things like hustle, um, grit, perseverance that still benefit me to date. But yeah, I would have loved to have grown up middle class so I could uh, hang out and have brand new sneakers and Nikes and Nintendos and Segas and all that stuff. So all the things I spoil my kids with now, they have no clue what it's like yeah. to be without. So how about yeah. you, man? Like, you know, well, what about let you? me um, let me go back to Reverend Parker real quick. Uh-huh. So you you move from a situation where Reverend Parker's making a good a good income, right? But he's making one W two. He then moves into a situation where he's making less income, but he's got two W two, so he's working two jobs, right? How how did Reverend Parker like teach you guys about money? Like, what did you guys start to unpack about like how to handle money, how to balance a checkbook, how what about credit cards, what about investments, what about assets, liabilities? Like, how did you guys handle that in your house? It's a good question. I, I think it goes back to the scarcity mentality. I got to be honest, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about money because we didn't have any. Right. And so I got my first credit card maybe two years into college, but we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it. We didn't spend time talking about checkbooks or savings. It was very much a self-directed opportunity because my parents didn't have a lot. And so I, I think for me, I think we missed an opportunity to get some of those financial basics. And so consequently, you know, you fast forward a few years, you start making money, you get out of college. Well, you think you're making money. You got to college. You think you know what money is and you really don't. And then, you know, you start making a, a reasonable amount of income and I and I had none of the tools. So I had I had income without wisdom, which creates a bad, bad churn. So, yeah, I, I honestly think, you know, we missed an opportunity to learn about money. And I think even if you're growing up in a middle or a lower class situation where you don't have a lot of money, it's even more important to learn the basics of balancing a checkbook and, and how to make a dollar stretch. So I'd say for me, I, I missed something that. I got to make sure I instill in my kids. Um, so I, I want to point out something. You guys learned how to stretch a dollar, but do you feel like that you guys were taught how to make a new dollar? 
Good question. I think we've we grew up knowing that knowing that money equal work, right? So it's like you want money, you work for it. You want something, you work for it. So we grew up with no illusion that money grew on trees or that our parents didn't have to work. And so, but I think the flip side of that is, you know, when it was time to get new clothes or pay, you know, a, a, you know, a, what is it, the registration fee for college, we knew like, no, I'll just pay for it myself. So I think we grew up with a high degree of autonomy and financial independence from our family because we knew we couldn't depend on it. I mean, I know people, I won't mention any names, but I know people that are in the 30s or 40s, they still get checks from mom and dad. You know, there's still like this, this monthly injection. I wish, I wish that was the case. But for us, we knew after 18, mom and dad ain't, ain't, ain't really coming around. So yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting dynamic in, in our household when it comes to money. So today, you now teach Financial Peace University. So for those that don't know about that, number one, unpack that a little bit. But I think it's so important that you kind of go back to the, the bouncing a checkbook, you know, um, having financial literacy in, in your own past, you know, and now you're willing to go teach that to other people, basically what you've learned and kind of how you've educated yourself. Um, and you do it in your church. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, we switched to obviously online, and so we've evolved the platform. But I think this was probably about five years ago. Um, I started teaching um, what is called Financial Peace University, which is a uh, a nine week course by Dave Ramsey. Some of you know his. He has you know a podcast. He has a radio show, website, etc. But Dave Ramsey has a, a nine week course on getting out of debt and Financial Peace University is a pretty foolproof curriculum on not only getting out of consumer debt, but also saving and building a legacy and a future. And so when Alicia and I got married, it's one of the first books we read together because we wanted to buy a house. And we decided, hey, let's buy a house, but hey, let's like get some advice. And I remember, uh, you know, it was, it was a checklist of how to know you're ready to buy your first house, right? And so we're newlyweds, had, uh, I think I was at Radio Shack at the time, uh, so, you know, I was making a, a decent income and she was teaching everybody buys a house when they get married. And then I, I remember the first chapter is like, do not buy a house if you cannot put 20% down. Do not buy a house if you still have consumer debt, credit card or student loans. And do not buy a house if you don't know you're going to live there more uh, at least five years. And we still had credit card debt and consumer loans. We weren't ready to put 20% down in the house and we were depressed. Because all our friends are buying houses, but we chose that path. So instead of uh, going against advice, we actually leaned into it. It took us three years, but we paid off about $80,000 in quote unquote normal consumer debt. You know, student loans, it's credit cards, just things like that. We paid all of that off. And I remember uh, celebrating our, our debt freedom from consumer debt, but also feeling entrusted with a an obligation to share that with other people. So since then, you know, I've been opportunity to really, you know, mentor and partner with 40 different couples uh, over the years to go with them on that journey. Just going through the Financial Peace University curriculum on saving up an emergency fund, paying off your snowballing your debt, paying off your bills, um, you know, insurance and investments, uh, starting to decide how you save and when and where learning to know your your saving personality, your saver, your spender. A lot of it's just the basics of how to navigate a family budget. But I think for us, because we saw the value of it, it changed our life. And I know that sounds very cliche these days, but 
Absolutely did. It changed our kids' lives. It changed how we viewed money. Our money arguments went away because you don't have to argue about money if you're both submitted to the same plan, right? And then you can just argue about what to buy with the money for sure. But, you know, what house, what car, but you don't have to argue about money. And so it streamlined our marriage so much. I think it created a breathing room for us. And then from there, we've been able to really, I mean, we've, gosh, there, I, I got to say, I mean, our ability to not only save, uh, but to be generous and give into missions and ministries and people and be kind and generous. I mean, it's it's surpassed our expectations in every single way. And so that decision to forego and delay what we wanted to do what we needed to do for us set us on a path that has been um, life changing, life affirming, but also a journey that I want every couple to go through. And so, yeah, it's, it's great, but it, it wasn't easy, but it's so worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple pieces of feedback there. Um, number one, as we talk about race, and that's going to kind of always be a constant theme for us, one of the challenges for us as we sit three generations away from our grandparents was a, a lot of our grandparents weren't able to buy houses. And my, my grandparents were able to, they were able to buy property, you know, they were able to own, own quite a bit of land. Um, but your family, perhaps, that may have been more of a challenge. And we saw that right after World War II with redlining and then uh, the inability for African-Americans to get mortgages. And one of the things that people don't talk about a lot, but is true, is that for families to build wealth over a long period of time, uh, owning their residence is kind of like a savings account in a way, right? So sometimes a house isn't necessarily the most... Um, the best asset on the books, if that makes sense, right? Because it's not really paying you anything back. But if you make a good deal on it, you buy it and you pay it down, it really creates opportunity for the generations to come in a big way. And I know in America, we have a weird uh, um, affection for these homes, right? Like you and I have both been to Uganda. We know what a hut looks like, right? And so we believe that all houses are huts. And so sometimes we just get way too affixed or um, like focused on, on this house and this thing and have this emotional relationship with it that we're going to pay whatever amount it takes each month to, to have that thing. But what I will say is that that thing can be a great savings account for a future generation. And so were your parents able to own their own home? Were your grandparents able to own their own home? Yeah, grandparents for sure. I think, you know, the mark of, I think, yeah, I think success, I won't say wealth, but I'd say at least achievement, uh, especially in the African-American community, which my grandparents was like owning their home, right? And that home, they didn't leave that home. I mean, grandma's home, granddad's home on both sides. That that was it. I mean, they they died in that home. That that home became the gift that they gave um, for sure. But, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, I uh, as a, you know part of uh, working for Bacardi, we have an office in Bermuda. So I spend a good amount of time in Bermuda and Bermuda is, you know, 60 percent uh, African-American um, in its um, racial composition. And it's got an interesting history with, you know, uh, white settlers and British colony and, 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 and there's racial strife and things like that. It's fascinating. But you talk and Bermuda is actually one of the top 10 most expensive places to live in the world. So it's you know, it's this crazy place where like your house is your legacy. Like you buy a house and the land and it, 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 I mean, people, 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 I mean, work their whole life to own that house. And I, I think uh, the house, especially, if, you know, for our families, it, sometimes it can be an icon of, 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 of independence and success. And so when you saw 
in 2008 with the financial crisis and some of the subprime uh, mortgage, it disproportionately hit the African-American community because, you know, we were the recipients of predatory loans and subprime loans. And so and so on the flip side, you know, we were redlined out of uh, wealth creation in the call it the 40s through the 60s. And then when they open up the loans, we got the worst loans and the worst rates. And so that when the economy shifted, we were, you know, disproportionately affected. And so now you have generations of black wealth destroyed, just gone. So homes gone, families torn apart. And it's, it's tragic. Um, you know, communities like Atlanta, there's still lasting impacts of that. And so, yeah, the, the house represents a, a, a great wealth vehicle from a perception basis. But I think what we're moving towards and I think what we're learning is how do you look at assets across the board and maybe the home might not be the piece maybe it's you know staying liquid diversifying etc just because you know i think we're gonna have to rethink how, how we view houses because yeah you're right they're all huts yeah and it's interesting that a recent study that came out talked about uh, millennials and renting and that more millennials are choosing to rent as opposed to buy but what is fascinating is is that you would think that if you rented, your savings would still reflect, you know, the same as if you were if you bought a house, right? So you'd say, oh, well, I'm renting or I'm buying for the same amount, yada yada. So you would think that their savings account would look the same. It's interesting that the renter's savings account was non-existent or was not as high as those that owned a home. And so I think that there's a mentality that happens with property ownership, just like in business ownership. There is something that says, like, I have to be prepared. I have to find a way. Now, you and I both know, and you've seen this in Financial Peace University, that there are people all day long who are upside down in their house and they, you know, don't have any savings. But there is something mentally that shifts when you buy a home. Now, there's a lot of schools of thought out there right now that says, hey, homes are really just an anchor um, and you should be able to be flexible and mobile and you should move from place to place. And it's more about experiences. And I think that that's true. But I think if you're going to do that, you've got to be willing to submit yourself to something like a financial peace university kind of education in, in financial uh, what would you call that? Financial. Just like, here. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like literacy, just basics of uh, just kind of knowing, you know, and having a plan. So I think there's if you lay out a plan for like where you want to be as a family. And it sounds so cliche. Like I said, I mean, me and my wife, we've done all the corny things that people are like, did you really? Yeah, we have a financial plan, like a document. Right. And so when we sit down with our financial advisor, we can say, all right, if I want to retire by the time I'm 60, you know, I need to have $3.5 million, uh, you know, in, in some kind of investments, okay? If we want to pay off our house by, by this date, what does our payment rate need to be? And so it's just really tracking along those things. So having a financial plan uh, helps. And it's one of those things where you you won't get financially independent by accident, right? And you won't, you won't out-earn your level of stupidity. And so making a lot of money or a high-income job is no actual guarantee of, of building wealth. Matter of fact, there are certain careers, especially in America, where um, you're high earners, but you actually don't have a whole, whole lot of savings as well. And so I, I think we got to be smart around just rethinking the role of money. Um, you know, one of my favorite books is uh, Stop Acting Rich by Thomas Stanley. For me, it was one of the first books, especially growing up, you know, like poor, you know, I grew up on the South Side. Um, you know, I grew up, you know, I grew up sleeping in a junior, you know, little size bed till I was 18. First time I had a, a room to myself, I was 20 years, 20 years old, right, in college. Um, 
And so you have a view, a misperception of what you think wealth is. And I remember reading that book and looking at okay, the habits of people who actually have money are totally different from the habits you think people with money have. And so now, you know, when I see people with, oh, that house is so nice. Oh, that designer bag is so nice. Oh, that. I mean, and, it, and like I said, it's not judgmental. They could very well be fine financially. I know nine times out of ten, the very things that you're buying to um, present the the uh, perception of wealth are actually impeding your creation of it. And, and yeah, and, and, and so for us, that's been the big key of staying focused on what makes us happy. Spurge on what makes you happy, but don't spurge for other people um, as well. So that that's that's been a constant thing for us when it comes to every aspect of our financial lives. All right. So speaking of spending on things that make you look a certain way, <laughs> let's talk about the silver Jaguar. Oh, don't bring up the Jag. Oh, it's a horror story. Would you unpack for us like a season of your life that, you know, really was littered with bad financial decisions? And I'm just going to allude to the fact that I think the Silver Jaguar was part of that story. The Silver Jag was a bad financial decision. And so long story short, I was, um, what was I, 26, 27. So I was director of marketing at uh, Kate Spade. In, in Liz Claiborne in New York City, corner office, Empire State Building. I was the man. I was leaving that job to come, you know, start a business and agency in, in, in Dallas. And so instead of, for some reason, I thought I need to look the part of a successful business person instead of actually spending my time and investment on like building a successful, I, I don't know. It, it sounds so silly in retrospect, but well, well you got to have a luxury car, right? Because, you know, if you're going to have a business. So, you know, I came down and I got the V8 uh, luxury. It was a silver Jag and that thing could go. I mean, the engine was amazing. I mean, I could get it. It was amazing. Challenges. A, I had payments on it and every payment you, that goes towards the automobile isn't going to your business. Right. So when starting a business, you might want to keep your overhead pretty low and control the fixed costs. Why would you buy a Jag if you're starting a business? It was very dumb. Um, and so the oil changes on that. Was like a $200 oil change. A piece of plastic comes off the back. It's 500 bucks a pop. I remember, I mean, I spent more time driving back and forth to get it fixed than I spent driving in it. And it was just a bad decision that followed me. I, m- I remember at some point, you know, I missed payments because I couldn't afford to pay for that and actually keep the business afloat. And it took me like a few years to unwind from that bad decision. And it wasn't that, you know, owning a Jag is not bad, but I think it was the motivations of it. It was motivated by the perception of uh, what I thought I needed to be than that. And that's the thing about money. Most money decisions, the math is the least of our worries. It's the mental and the attitude behind it. The math is the easiest part to get right. So when you can take the, the the mental motivations out of it and check yourself or submit to friends or family who can check you, which is a whole other su- subject, it will remove some of that stuff, man. But yeah, I, I, I didn't listen to, to good advice. And so I unpacked from that. So now I drive a Toyota and it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So can you... Transparently tell us how much money was in your bank account at that time. Oh man, at that time, so oh, I mean, oh and let me when, add when that. I got it, not or, just, yeah, 
And not just your bank account, right? Like, talk to me about assets and liabilities because that's one of the things we got to yeah. constantly come back to, yeah. right? Like, there's a difference in just cash and assets and liabilities. So, tell me about the cash. Tell me about the assets and liabilities at the time that you are dragging the bumper of a silver jag around <laughs> Dallas, Texas. <laughs> this is a story in how bad decisions lead to anemic outcomes. I tell you, I mean, I got to think. There was one year, this is probably like 2007, 2008, where, I mean, my total profit from business that year might have been 16000 Literally, I made $16,000 in a year. I made below the poverty level. And I remember doing an um, a audit, right, of my spending, which I never did before. I never tried. I just swiped and signed everything. I was spending like four or $5,000 a month on, like, entertainment. Like, I was just buying drinks for everybody when I was going out. And, you know, I was the guy to know I'd buy the meals and buy. And because I had this income, and, you know, it's not how much you earn, it's how much you save. And so it flowed right through me. I mean, I was the consummate consumer, I was the American nightmare of just spending. And so that year, I made like $16,000. Um, and I remember after the financial crisis hit, right? And no one saw the recession and the crisis coming. But I also didn't prepare for anything, right? I prepared for things to be rosy the whole way. So I, I remember, you know, at the, I think it was about, you know, 2008, 2009, where, I mean, I had no money in my bank account, zero. I, I mean, I was living week to week, buying peanut butter sandwiches and Tostitos every week just to make ends meet. I mean, I'm you're talking like walking into the grocery store for groceries and like picking up an application because I might as well just sack groceries to 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 make ends meet, right? I mean, it was utterly depressing. No health insurance because I couldn't I couldn't keep that payment up. I had cashed out my four hundred one k, maxed out my credit cards. Horrible, deplorable, and it was all my fault. So I, I didn't I didn't blame anybody. I I just knew I had to be better. My saving grace was I got all that out before I got married. <laughs> <laughs> But like in reality, that was only 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, that wasn't that long ago. That, that, that wasn't long ago. I, I still have PTSD from uh, feeling poor. That's why every time I'm cold, I think I feel poor because I remember like not being able to like heat myself up or turn on the heat in my car. So I remember like when I'm poor today, <laughs> my wife makes fun of me because I'm like, oh man, when I'm cold, I just feel so poor. Like. <laughs> I have poverty PTSD. That's got to be. I haven't Googled it. That's got to be a thing. Yeah. Why do you keep the house so hot? I want to feel rich. <laughs> okay, son. I got, I got money, son. I'm making it rain. I got heat. It's like the it's like the opposite in Texas. You should be turning the air conditioner on. I know. It's it's it's, it's very sad. It's very sad. I'm a sad case. Uh. So it's 2007. The summer of 2007. Johanna and I uh, have zero dollars in our bank account. Yeah. Zero dollars. Yeah, more than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing I want to add to that is that we had no assets. We had all liabilities. So we had two car payments. Uh, we had uh, two jet skis. And I think one of them we had a personal loan on. I did have a motorcycle, but that was the only, that may have been the only asset, but it really wasn't bringing in, in any income. So we had our first house. We made a bunch of money on that first house. And we invested half of it in a business and we bought this second house because we wanted to keep up, right? Like we wanted to get to that next level. And once we bought it, 
we couldn't even sell it for what we bought it for. We we were so hungry for just to get that house. And so we literally had zero dollars and all liabilities, man. We were a mess. That's horrible. But now things have changed greatly, right? But how'd you guys dig out? So what was the turning point? And my guess is it wasn't financial as much as it was mental or spiritual. What what was that what was that um that breaking point, that irreversible crucible moment where you guys said, ain't doing that again. Yeah. So I want to lead us back to this point later in the episode, but you know, the, the view that money is spiritual, like that's a big component to the conversations that happen in our family and, and how we view money, that money is spiritual. And so if you looked at our life in that season, anyway, we were just kind of a mess anyway, relationally, Uh, We were just kind of all over the place. And so we had to get back together on everything. And a big part of that was looking at our budget again, like or looking at our budget for the first time. And I will transparently tell you that Johanna and I went back to premarital counseling. We literally as a couple went back and submitted ourselves underneath the leadership of two amazing people at our church. And we went back through premarital counseling with all like these young kids who were like, you know, they were all excited because they were getting married. And here we are, we've been married for four or five years and we're going back and we're like, holy cow, we didn't do any of that. We didn't learn any of that. And so it was like this whole relearning process. And so from that, we formed a new budget, you know, and from that, we started to look at money differently. Um, We were a shift in our careers at that time. Um, And yeah. From that, from that point on, we also started to buy real estate um, and we invested in real estate as an asset and that was super helpful as well. Um, we took that home that we were living in and we were able to rent it out and so we were able to create income from that and we started to see what it looked like to receive passive income from real estate and that was an eye opener at that time. Um, but yeah, but to get back to it, I think like it was a heart adjustment more than it was a, a checkbook adjustment, if that makes sense. And then after that, the the adjusting of your checkbook came easy. I think if you're honest, you can open your bank account right now. And if you look at where your money is going, that's where your heart is at. So for most of us, like the truth was before this uh, health crisis, it was in restaurants, right? Maybe it was in shopping, right? Maybe it's in your house payment. Maybe it's in clothes, like those kind of things. And if you if you're real about it, like you don't want it to be there. I mean, you enjoy those things, but that's not really where you want your heart to be at. So you've got to be willing to make an adjustment. So we made a huge adjustment. We moved to what we would call like an 80-20 type of lifestyle where we we live on 80 percent of our income or less. Right now it's less than that. And we tithe um, and save 20 percent or more. Um, And that's been something that we've held on to for a long time. So a lot of times when I'm speaking to uh, guys that are getting out of school right now, I, I teach them the 80-20 rule, right? Like, hey, you've got to tithe first right off the top. And I don't care who you are, whether you're a believer or not, that tithe is a universal principle that even guys like Robert Kiyosaki will teach that 10% of whatever it is that you make needs to go back to something. You need to give it away. And then at a minimum, 10% needs to go back towards savings of some kind, right? Whether that's your 401k, whether that's a savings plan, whatever that is, but that thing has to be making interest. And I want you to talk about you know compounding interest later on, but that thing has to be making money. Then you've got to learn to live on 80% of what you bring in. Um, and I know for a lot of people that might be a challenge because you might say, well, yo, I don't make that much. 
Well, I would tell you, you've got to get creative in that moment. And I'm going to be realistic. Like if you're yeah. making $16,000 a year, that's going to be a really hard principle to live by. Right? <laughs> I love that. But, but if you're like you or I, and that first job out of school, you know, and you're making somewhere in the, the mid forties, um, you know, like there's a good space for you in that to learn to apply that 80, 20 rule. Yeah, it's good. Now, I think one thing that changed our marriage was not only getting out of debt, but kind of our what we created as a family budget. And we haven't changed it in years. I mean, we kind of agreed on it and it was it. But the book that led to it was a book called, um, well, two books, both by Elizabeth Warren, uh, Senator Warren, before she was in politics. So, you know, she was a Harvard professor and her and her daughter wrote a series of books because she had seen and researched firsthand this economic crisis. And so one book was called The Two Income Trap, and it captured the history of how Americans in their pursuit of not only uh, housing, but also educational excellence, we lost both. And so, you know, historically to get the best school, you had to get the house in the neighborhood by the school that had higher property taxes. And so traditionally, uh, you know, you had a one income household. So a man would work or a woman would work and if one lost their job, the other one could kind of supplement. Well, what happened throughout the 60s through the 80s is, well, you both start working. So if you both make 50000 and you live at a $100,000 lifestyle, one person loses their job and it all falls apart. Like the, there is no medium. So that was one where we wanted to avoid because we knew my wife wanted to stay, would be a stay-at-home mom at some point. So we knew we had to live off of one income uh, when we started our, our marriage. Um, second one was, uh, it's called All Your Worth, and it's a, like a lifetime money plan. And where like FPU, Financial Peace University, teaches you how to get out of debt and balance your budget, I think All Your Worth teaches you how to build the budget for your life. And I think, so for us, what we built was, you know, a, a very simple budget. So we had 50% goes towards our needs. And so needs are, definition is, if you got fired tomorrow, what bills would you still have to pay, right? And so it's your mortgage. It's, you know, uh, obligations that are legal, you know, things like that. So 50%. So we made sure that none of it went or at least tried. So we didn't start off that way. We Our target was 50% to needs. Uh, we had 20% to wants. So that could be entertainment. That's eating out. That's Netflix. That's, I don't know, if you have a house cleaner, whatever. 20%. These are your wants. 15%. Uh, we started with 10%, but 15% now goes to giving, right? So just give a charity, church. Uh, philanthropy or, or even friends, friends or family who you need acts of kindness. That counts too. And then another 15% at least to um, savings, right? Just kind of like uh, building your retirement, building your kids' college funds, things like that. So now the magic for us is when we have a budget meeting, I don't have to go into the details. My wife loves the details. I hate them. All I need to know is like 40%, 50%, 20%. Yep. If the ratios are fine, and the good news about that is when you're building, and whatever your ratio is, so, you know, call it 60, 70, once you align on those, on your principles of how you're going to manage your budget, you don't have to argue about, oh, well, what house can we afford? You say, well, what house payment fits into this at a 15 or 30 year, you know, rate mortgage, whatever it is. If it fits, it's fine. You don't have to haggle. You don't have to go on Google to find advice on how much house you can afford. You set your own budget. So when you direct your own dollars, they work harder for you. When you outsource that direction to a, a mortgage lender or a broker or an automotive dealer or anybody else, well, it's just stupid. It's, it's insanity. Uh, but we do it every day. So that's other bad advice to not follow. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I think yeah. the thing that is so important in both of these situations that we're talking about is that our hearts learned that off the top, off the very, very top, that ten, at a minimum 10% has to, to leave our hands and go back to something else. You know, for you and I, it's our local church. And then on top of that, we're able to be generous in these other areas, you know, whether it's through nonprofit organizations um, or like you said, like people in our own community. But off the top, if you're a young person, and you're listening to this, you have got to get this. Do not put that 10% at the bottom. Put that 10% at the very top because here's what happens. If you put it at the bottom, it won't happen. It just won't happen. Put it at the top, automate it, forget about it. Okay, boom, you've got 90% left. Automate that 10% to savings. Boom, forget about it. It's done. Whatever's left, then like AP said, like you break it down into these categories. But if you don't do those two things off the top and automate them, I'm telling you guys straight up, there's a very small group of people in the world that can make that happen. And there's a pretty good chance that you're not one of those. Yeah, I agree. No, I mean, the statistics on giving, and whether you're Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't, I mean, we, we Americans, we just don't give. And so we have so much wealth tied up in, in our hands that just goes to consumerism. Even so, if you look at the stats on just Christian giving, largely we, you know, so Christians outgive non-Christians. And that's not a, that's, you know, uh, research-based. But if you look at the level of giving for Christians, it's pales into comparison by what we should, right? And so the reality for me is this, and it's why I'm so passionate about it, is, is if the believers of Christ literally gave to, actually gave 10%, 10% of your income, we would wipe out poverty overnight because there is more than enough to go around across the world. There is more than enough food, more than enough money. and shelter. It exists. We have it all, but it's disproportionately... Uh, you know, held up, right? So there are people right now living day to day. And me and you have been to cities and towns or slums where people live day to day. They wake up to get enough money to buy food for that day and go to sleep and they do it again. And that's their life, right? And then here we are, right? We're in a position to live, you know, if you're month to month, year to year, some of us decade to decade, some families, you know, century to century, right? And then we start to have that shift, but it starts with how you give your money, not only how you invest it for yourself, but how you invest it for other people. And for us, it's, it's a, I think you should have a giving portfolio um, that's just as equal to your investment portfolio, right? So have fun with it. You know, you want to give to different causes, have your yeah. kids pick a charity, um, yeah. acts of kindness, poverty alleviation. I mean, those are fun things that you could do. There's, there's yeah. so many nonprofits you can volunteer for your time, but also give your money. I think make it fun, but make it a family effort. Well, your kids are excited about it. That's so true. That has been the fun part of us making money. That's why I yeah. love making money because I get to give it away. And because we've built that into our, our money making plan, right? We get to give that money away and it is so fun. It is so fun after we flip a house um, or we do a creative project and we get paid for it. We get to say, hey, where do we want to give this money to? And for, and for Joe and I both, it's been to write some really basic organizations, uh, Freedom 424 that um, helps fund organizations that, that basically break up human trafficking and sex slavery. Um, and then for me personally, it's been the seed program in Uganda where we're doing microloans to families in northern Uganda. So like, I love knowing that that's the motivation for me a lot of times behind making more money is because I get to give it away at the end of the day. It's big, man. So what do you like, what do you say to the guy? Because I know you, you mentor a lot of guys. To the guy that's like, I just don't get it. Like, 
why should I give? I'm still, I need to take care of my family. I just don't get why giving is such a big deal. Like, why? I would tell him that I believe that that's the way the world is wired. So it's whether, again, whether you're a believer or not, there is a universal principle that says at a minimum 10% of what you bring in needs to go out. And for some reason, that's the magic number. We all think as believers that that's the way that God wired the world. And so it's, it's a truth is a truth, you know, no matter where it's found, as Paul says. But you know, I would tell him that, like, if you will trust me with this moment and learn to, again, give that 10 off the top, 10 to savings, and learn to live on the other 80, I'm promising you, you will see a shift in your home, your family, your heart. Um, but it's a trust thing, right? And I think... Like our money, we also don't trust him with our time. And that's been a big thing for me in the last several years where I've had to learn to trust him with my time as well. Um, and that means taking a break every once in a while. In fact, taking a break every week um, and learning learning the Sabbath. So. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. So I guess speaking of learning, all right, so unfollow, right? We, this is, we're giving up something. We're letting go of bad advice. We're learning what's new, but we're leading what's next. What are you leading? What's what's next for you, I think, in this phase in regards to your relationship with money, uh, your mm. business, or even how you're you're viewing your financial yeah. life? Well, so going back to the learning component, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my my two pillars for, for the money talk are going to be Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, this book has been out for three decades at least at this point. But what it does is it starts to teach Um, young people to think in the difference of a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. And that's what we started this conversation with. So we're going to end this conversation with this is once you begin to see the difference in an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset, it unlocks the world. And this is a game. Like, let's get this straight. Like money is a game. And And a big part of what we've been talking about with race in the last several weeks is like allowing people into that game um, and people were like, what do you mean it's a game? Well, a lot of people were never taught the rules of the game and, and how the game is played. And just think about it like when you're a kid, right? Like when you learn a, a new rule to the game or you learn that there's certain things you can and cannot do or there's certain things that if you unlock this, you get to go even deeper. Like that is how money works. And so whenever I find somebody who's a little bit farther along than me in something, I love to lean into them and ask them a question like, hey, how'd you do that? And and what kind of account should that be in? And how do you manage that? So for me, I literally have a guy in my life who is in his mid 60s. He is a a wealth manager here in um, in our town in Lynchburg. And he is amazing. Um, And what he does is he takes me to lunch. I ask him questions. He gives me answers. I pay for lunch because it's worth the 30 bucks for lunch because it's been so good for me. He's taught me so many things about where to put my money outside of real estate and the buckets. And it's, it's been awesome. So rich dad, poor dad, asterisk, find yourself a financial mentor. Um, and then the second book for me on this one is it's a little book called Thou Shalt Prosper by Rabbi Daniel Laban. And it really breaks down how the Jewish culture has looked at money from day one. And if you look at the story of Jesus, like keep that in mind that he was really a good Jewish boy as he talked about money so often. So money is going to be one of those things that is constantly talked about in his culture in the you know first century B.C., uh, as a as a little Hebrew boy, and so that's why we see it so often in the Gospels. Uh, and 
it is one of those things that once you learn that money is spiritual, what you learn is that the, the currency itself is amoral, but the interaction between two people is the spiritual component. And so then that money brings those two spirit-filled beings together. And so that that exchange is a spiritual exchange. And you don't think about that every day. You don't think about that at the convenience store or even in your own paycheck. But there has been a spiritual component to the exchange of money. And so what happens when we learn to view our money in that way, it makes you respect other people and the exchange of money back and forth in a way that says, hey, I wanna treat you with dignity and respect. Um, Hey, honestly, right now, I know I owe you some cash. I'm gonna get that to you, I promise. But I just wanna give you a heads up. And whether that's with your mortgage bank or whether it's with the guy cutting your yard, that same mentality applies. That's good, man. Yeah, I have that book now. I haven't finished it yet, but I, that's your prosper is on my list. And yeah, we, I mean, both of us have a list of probably at least 10 books and stuff. So we'll have to post uh, some kind of update on the social channels of just some of our top uh, money books of what we've learned and some of our stories. Um, now, I'd say for me, you know, um, I've been so focused on, I think, historically, you know, uh, A, financial literacy, B, getting out of debt. B, building wealth or an opportunity. Uh, C, being generous, et cetera. But I think now, you know, especially as, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 40, uh, kids kids running around the house now. I think, you know, I'm thinking about how do I build not just a, a wealthy um, career and a bank account, but a wealthy life. And I think there's this quote that haunted me when I came across it last year. And it's this, it is, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. So the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. And I remember thinking, you know, wealth is just a simple formula, right? It's what you own minus what you owe. So what you own minus what you owe is the formula for simple formula for wealth. So if what I own, right, is a job or a career, and I subtract what I invest, which is the time, travel, stress, energy, etc. I think oftentimes, right? And I gotta say to people I know, I mean, I have formulas in a deficit. Like what what we right. what we owe, what we're investing is is actually outpacing what we're getting. And I think, you know, you once you ask yourself, hey, is my career costing me peace or my marriage or my fatherhood or relationship? Um I mean, if, am I going into poverty living for a perception of success? And so that's for me, what's next is thinking about, you know, um, Christian uh, Claytonson, one of the, um, oh, Clayton Christensen, sorry, one of the, uh, I mean, foremost thinkers, Harvard uh, professor, uh, he just passed, you know, a a few months ago, um, wrote a book called um, How You Measure Success. And, you know, this guy who studied, you know, millionaires and companies for his entire life. And I think, you know, one of his really interesting truths was this, it was, you know, some of the Hardest things to measure are the most important. You won't know if you're a good father for decades. You won't know if, if you're a good friend for decades. Um, but it can be so intoxicating, right, to a performance review at work, a promotion, your income statement, your tax bracket. And as you start to follow those breadcrumbs to fulfillment, I think you're going to end up in a path that isn't fulfilling. And so one thing for me is you talk about the mindset behind money, not the mathematics, is just making sure I'm building wealth in a way that builds a wealthy life, even if that requires a reduction in lifestyle, or if that requires a, a reduction in 
quality of life or level of living, I think there's there's no replacement for that. So I, I've been thinking a lot about that and wrestling with, you know, like what's that finish line where it's like, you know what, past this, I give it away. You know what? That time with my family and my friends is more way more important than that time getting up that next level or on that ladder um, for me. So yeah, that that that's my existential ec economic thinking. I don't have the answer, but I'm absolutely sure that you know everything you ask me to do, whether it's you know a project or a trip, whatever, I'm weighing that right. How much of life am I giving up for for this other thing as well? So I encourage listeners do that for everything. Start now. Don't wait till you're 40 and bald to uh to, to start thinking about what success really is for you think now yeah uh could you give me that author again yes uh clayton christensen amazing yeah all right so to kind of wrap us up you know like what are we leading into now um and i think for both you and i as fathers at home you know this is money is one of those things that like we said in the beginning, maybe we didn't have exactly the conversation we wanted to with our family. You know, we probably saw some things modeled that were amazing, like hard work. Um, you weren't given things like, man, that that's honorable. Like that is really honorable. But I think in addition to that, there's some things I want to have conversations with with my children that kind of set them up. Um, so, for example, we didn't talk about money a lot in my family. Um, it was one of those things that you know, we, we got an allowance and we were told to tithe out of it. Um, but we really weren't told about investing, right? We really weren't told about assets versus liabilities. Um, and what I will say is that my, my dad did model that, like my dad did invest in property. He did invest in land. Um, it was kind of a quiet investment. Um, and, and they were, they were successful, but it wasn't one of those things that we openly had a conversation and a dialogue about a lot. Um, my grandfather is actually kind of bigger into that. Um, and you know, my, they say that I take more after my grandfather. Maybe that's what it is, right? Maybe it's that, that same energy. But one of the things that I've done in this season with the girls was, like, listen, I'm not the best math teacher. I, I really you know, probably am not gonna be good at long division. Um, I couldn't tell you how, if I had three fish plus two turtles, you know, what is my sea creature life look like mathematically? But what I am really good at is helping them understand money. So we did money just about every day at home uh, during this COVID season. And so I have three jars for them, right? And they've got these three little jars in the cupboard. And one is for tithing or we call it giving. One is for savings, right? And then the other is for spending. And so, you know, right now for them, it literally looks like three little jars in the cupboard. And so that's kind of what I'm leading them into. And then they constantly, back to my, my point on modeling, they are constantly seeing Johan and I buy real estate. And we are really, they've been in every old building that we've been in. Like they've been with us across this whole journey together. And so I want them to constantly look back and say, okay, like why were mom and dad buying these houses? Why were they selling them, flipping them, improving them, you know? Um, and it, obviously there's going to be a deeper spiritual thing there for them, but like on the surface level, I want them to understand the difference in assets and liabilities specifically for us as it comes to real estate. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I think we're, we're very similar. Obviously our, our kids are a little earlier on, on that journey than, uh, Ella Easton, although Emmanuel, I guess you're probably teaching him something too, uh, as well. But I think you know, five things kind of, we've been deliberate around teaching our kids is one is delayed gratification, right? Sometimes you got to say no, just to say no. So they know that things take time, right? Um, 
Two is the difference between a want and a need. So you've been, oh, I want, I need, oh, is it a want or a need? And like, and, and oh, for a kid, you know, for a five-year-old, you know, or a seven-year-old, like what? <laughs> They're really? all needs. Yeah, like, yeah. But really being clear about those definitions. Uh, third thing is, you know, the, I've talked about it earlier, work equals money, right? So if you're getting money, somebody's created value somewhere. Even if you didn't create the value to get the thing, somebody's created it. And so just that the respect for, for money, the respect for work or the exchange of value that has to happen for, for money to be created. Uh, four is generosity. Just being able to know that everything we own is on loan. Like nothing we have is ours. Like the house, the, none of it. Like our bank account. We don't own any of it. God has loaned it to us. We're stewards. And so if you're borrowing it, why wouldn't you invest ahead for where you're going? And so if, if I know where I'm going, I'm going to invest ahead into uh, a eternal portfolio, right? That yields fruit that, that won't ever fade. And so that power of generosity, you know, seeing Caleb, you know, start a, a hot cocoa stand to raise money for, for families, or now, you know, Chloe and Caleb are both working on maybe a lemonade stand so they can raise money to, to donate to causes. Like, that's cool. And I love that they're doing that on their own. And I think lastly, teaching them to be um, creative entrepreneurs, right? I think the jobs they're going to do or the companies they're going to start, whether they're working for wages or working for profits, they don't exist today. Right. They're, they're not going to be doing brand marketing. And, you know, I mean, you know, when they're in the workforce, a lot of them are going to create their own paths. And so I want them to have that that intelligent agility to be able to see an opportunity and seize it. Right. And so Caleb says, I want to start a website. He starts a website. He says, I want to shoot a video. He shoots a video. Like, I, I, I don't want to um, inflict on him the same boundaries that I, I, I kind of had growing up where you got to get a job, you got to make a certain amount, and you always have a car payment, and then you got to pay off through the loan. Screw, well, can I say screw that? Screw that, man. Like, you, like let's, let's empower them to be much more creative with how they can create value. So I think those five things have been our foundations. And then as they grow, we'll start to, to mold as well. But I love seeing them start their own journey and I'm just empowering them to, to just fulfill what's inside already. Man, that's so good. And just for y'all out there to know, like these are little kids, like Ella's the <laughs> oldest at nine and then, you know, Emmanuel's yeah. just born, but like Adrian's kids are like right in between. So like our goal is to teach this to them now. And what you said about being creative entrepreneurs, I think is so powerful because back to the beginning conversation we had um, about your family, Man, they were working so hard for that dollar. But if somebody would have came along and shared with them like, hey, I think I can I can help you understand how to ge- generate two new dollars. Um, yeah, without, for the same effort, like the same effort, right? Yeah. Yeah, without you having to get a, another W-2, right? But there's fear to that, right? There's fear to like stepping out into that. And so I don't necessarily like, begrudge or look down on on anybody doing that but what i would just say is like hey just be open read some of these books that we're going to share with you guys and think like man you know what like i can piece together that second job in order to put the down payment on a piece of real estate that is going to create passive income for me and my family or i'm going to get that second job so that then i can take that money and put it into an additional ira that is you know, creating compounding interest, which you and I didn't even get to compounding interest tonight. I'm telling you, we could do money for two yeah. or three episodes. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll, we'll have to have a follow up at some point on just going deep on, you know, so I guess if you're listening, tell us what you want to know. Like, send us emails or comments on 
hey, what do you want to go deep on? Is it, you know, commercial, business finance? Is it budgeting with family? Whatever that is. But yeah, that's a good point. We can go deep. I mean, there's so many ways to unpack this. You're right. Yeah. So if you're going to wrap up, how we are being abnormal, how we are unfollowing the crowd with money, what would you say it is? Um, living like you know where you're going. I think that's it. If you know where you're headed in this life and the next, why would you live as if today was the only option, right? So that's how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you invest your energy. Like send that stuff ahead, and you know, and I, I think God wants us to be. You know, I'm not a, a, I'm not a fan of asceticism, which is I, I don't put faith in my lack. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sitting here in sackcloth and ashes and and in a cardboard hut, quite uh, waiting to go to heaven. Oh, by any means, like you know, we have a comfortable house, and I, I, I want a great lifestyle, and for my, for my family and my kids, but my, my quality of life. Uh, submits to my quality of giving. And so I, I, I want to be able to free that up. And so I think for me, it's that like just living like you know what's next gives you such a, a respect and a, a, a mindset for, for how to, what to do today and what to invest in. How about you? What's you know the, what I, I love? Right? You know what I love about that real quick is that you just said that your spending is not reactionary. That your spending is proactive, like you have decided where that money is going. It's not like things are coming at you and then you you're reacting to them on a daily basis, right? Like you have said, and I love being in control of my money in that way, right? It's like I know where it's going, what's doing. For me, it's that money spiritual. This is a principle that I picked up about twelve or thirteen years ago, and it has changed my life. So money and the exchange of it um, is spiritual, and I think when we look at that. It, Changes the way we handle it. It's good. We're going to do a, a follow-up podcast when we're 50 and see if all of our money advice ended up this time being good or bad. We'll see. <laughs> man, I, man, I hope my bank account looks better than it did in 2007. <laughs> oh, man, me too. I can't go back to that. But, you know, we, we're learning how to move ahead. Um, no, this has been a great conversation. I think we touched on tip of the iceberg on so many topics, but I, I hope our listeners found it valuable Anything you want to dig on, send us a note, leave us a comment, and we'll be happy to follow up as well. We truly do this. Like I say, we're not making any money on this. We actually just think that you know, two old dudes sharing a couple of thoughts could actually be some breadcrumbs of value and wisdom that could help somebody else along their journey avoid mm. some of the pitfalls we had. So thank you guys for listening. Hey guys, this is the Unfollowed Podcast with AP and DC. I hope you've enjoyed what you heard. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's 100,000 other podcasts out there. But if you did, we hope you subscribe and you share this with a friend. We'll talk to you soon.